This is Inform Your Resistance with PRA, Political Research Associates. Tune in twice a month to hear experts, researchers, journalists, academics, and movement strategists explain some of the most significant contemporary threats to democracy from the mainstream and far right. Together, we break down the so what of these movements so that you can inform your resistance in the fight for a just and inclusive democratic society. Political Research Associates has been producing rigorous, long-form analysis on the intersections of right-wing strategy for over 40 years. With Inform Your Resistance, we distill what you need to know most. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Koki Mendes, Communications Director here at PRA. Today, I'm joined by Saka Bhatti, co-executive director of ACRE, Action Center on Race and the Economy, to reveal and trace the roots of racial capitalism and sociopolitical injustice, state violence, and precarious living. We discuss the ways in which mass incarceration, gig work, and culture war uphold racially stratified wealth inequality and the strategies available to us on the left to contest power and advance redistribution. Saka Bhatti is a co-founder and co-executive director of the Action Center on Race and the Economy, or ACRE. Saka works on campaigns to win racial and economic justice by taking on the corporations responsible for extracting wealth and resources from communities of color and poor people. Coming from an immigrant Muslim family from Pakistan, Saka's first foray into organizing was with the student anti-war movement following 9-11. After college, he spent 10 years working on corporate campaigns with the Culinary Workers Union, Unite Here in Las Vegas, and the Service Employees International Union, SEIU. He was previously a fellow at the Nathan Cummings Foundation and the Roosevelt Institute, where he launched the Refund America Project, a predecessor organization to ACRE. Sakab is a co-founder and executive committee member of the Bargaining for the Common Good Network and serves on the boards of the Americans for Financial Reform Education Fund, the Midwest Academy, and our very own Political Research Associates. Sakab received his bachelor's degree from Yale University and his master's degree from the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. Sakab, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. So I'm going to just start us off talking about racialized policing and mass incarceration. So racialized policing and mass incarceration, as we know, really acts as a repository for people who would otherwise find support and care in social safety net programs and policies. Um, How does this relationship develop between uh, austerity programs that reduce social safety net and then incarceration and policing and their associated inflated budgets. How did this relationship develop? How do you see it functioning on the ground? And how do you at ACRE address this relationship? I mean, that's whenever we're faced with a problem, we have two choices, right? We can either address the underlying cause or we can treat the symptoms and paper over the root causes. And I think cities are very much sort of faced with the same choice when dealing with social problems. And, you know, papering over the problems is much, much cheaper than addressing the root causes. And so they throw money at cops 
uh, and you know prison systems instead of the services that would give you know, communities of color real public safety, right? So like cash-starved cities like Chicago, they'll close mental health clinics and criminalize mental illness, right? And like in California, we'll like close homeless shelters, but then like, you know, pass vagrancy laws to criminalize the unhoused. Uh, instead of investing in parks and after-school programs, uh, we'll put cops on the street and pass anti-loitering laws criminalizing our youth. Instead of restorative justice programs, we'll put cops in schools and feed the school-to-prison pipeline. Throwing more money at police departments is cheaper than addressing the underlying structural issues. And that's, I think, really a key piece of how these things are linked. Like a real public safety means investments in public education, parks, public health, public transit, broadband access. It means actually investing in our communities. But doing that actually requires raising revenue and raising revenue from those who have it, right? The wealthy, the major corporations uh, who have a vested interest in stopping that from happening. And so instead we see a reliance on, and who actually use their campaign dollars to stop that from happening, uh, to stop themselves from being taxed. And so uh, instead we've seen entire, you know, we've seen just the rise of, uh, you know, pol the policing system. And we're seeing entire industries spring up to, uh, you know, to try to get in on the action, right? So like, uh, we're seeing, you know, private prisons, we're seeing, uh, you know, surveillance technologies like ShotSpotter, or what, they just actually changed their name to Sound Thinking, uh, right? But like ShotSpotter uh, is, I think, a, a really a, a great, or actually a very egregious example of how this works. Uh, we have, um, you know, ShotSpotter is essentially a giant microphone uh, that is, they say it's an, uh, an AI gunshot detection technology, but it's a giant microphone that they place in black and brown communities primarily. Uh, and it's supposed to, uh, you know, let you know, let, alert the police when a gun, when a gun goes off, when it hears a gunshot. But, you know, I don't know if you spent any time with um, on chat GPT, uh, but, you know, one thing that if you spend more than 10 minutes, you quickly realize that accuracy isn't its strong suit. Uh, and the same is true with ShotSpotter, right? Like it's uh, some studies suggest that it has more than 90% false alarm rate. Um, and so uh, it's this really faulty technology that at the end of the day, cities across the country are investing in it uh, because then they get to say they're doing something. Uh, they get to say that they're, uh, you know, doing something to address the problem of rising crime, uh, even though at the end of the day, this thing has, you know, it's, has a 90%, like 90, 90% false alarm rate. It led to a, a, a black man being put in jail for a year uh, while he awaited trial because of a false uh, shot spotter alarm. Uh, it's, we see all sorts of ways in which this is actually, it's not making communities safer, but it's actually having a real cost to communities of color. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, we're investing in, you know, throwing millions of dollars into this technology instead of putting it into services that'll actually make the community safer. Thank you. That was a really comprehensive connecting of the dots. Um, and I really appreciate the way in which you capture sort of the economic trade-off between actually addressing root problems and having Band-Aid solutions relying on faulty technology um, and the sort of short-term political capital that politicians receive from implementing programs that are fundamentally miss, um, miss the point. 
Uh, I also wonder here too, the especially when you talk about shop spot shutter in uh, black and brown communities, right? Part of under addressing underlying causes requires that politicians recognize black and brown children as worthy of investment and programs and, you know, aren't already headed down a a school to prison pipeline that is inherent, right? So I think that there's this dehumanization that plays a role here too and, and really stifles imaginative solutions that result in real care. Okay, so along these lines, thinking about uh, disinvestment, thinking about Band-Aid solutions, um, one of the ways we've seen a response to changing labor conditions, um, especially deindustrialization, has been an increase in employment in mega corporations, specifically within the gig economy, which has led to an increase in precarious employment for the U.S. working class. What are the some of the ways that, assuming we had a responsive federal government, these industries could and should be regulated by the state to improve working conditions and reduce precarity? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting when you think about precarious work. I think there's sort of like at least two major trends that we're seeing. Uh, so one is sort of the rise of like, you know, gig or app-based hiring platforms like Uber. And the other is really this trend of corporations being bought up by conglomerates and private equity firms. Uh, And both of these things, what they do is they actually leave workers farther and farther removed from their employers, right? And so, uh, you know, in the case of like ride-sharing apps like Uber and Lyft, you know, they've really decimated the taxi industry. And, you know, my family's Pakistani. I'm Pakistani-American. There's a lot of Pakistani-American taxi drivers, you know, really like... For a lot of immigrants to the U.S., like taxis provided, like have you know historically provided a source of a good job that actually gives you access uh, to sort of starting to like actually get to financial sustainability in the U.S. And that's been completely upended by Uber and Lyft uh, and other rideshare apps, right? Uh, and not for the reason that you might think, right? Or it's uh, so. I was talking a couple of years ago to someone who organizes Uber and Lyft drivers in Chicago. And they pointed out to me that there is 6,000, I think I have these numbers right, 6,000 taxi medallions in Chicago, right? That's how many people are licensed to drive taxis in the city of Chicago. There's 150,000 registered rideshare drivers, right? And so the reason why it takes a long time for your taxi to arrive but, you know, your Uber or Lyft will arrive in minutes is because there's just a vast, vast oversupply, uh, right? And so what that does is on the one hand, you know, we sort of you know, talk about, oh, well, this is the great thing about this flexible work. You can like work during, you know, in between like uh, trips, you can you know pick up someone and make a few bucks. But it's like, well, your gig is coming at the expense of someone else's full time job. Right. And if we're basically, you know, crowding out uh, the industry with oversupply, we're making it so that's really hard for folks who actually rely on that for their for to to feed their families, to like, uh, you know, pay rent. And we're making it really hard for them to actually make a living. And this is, you know, this is a, a really sort of big piece here is that so much of the, the these app based you know, work, so much of it relies on deregular on insufficient regulation right the taxi industry is highly regulated uh which it can sure it has an impact on supply but it also means that 
it also has an impact on safety. It has an impact on you know, the working conditions the workers have. All those things go out the window with Uber and Lyft uh, and other sort of rideshare apps coming in. They flout all the rules. They create an uneven, you know, like uh, they have an unfair competitive advantage uh, and they're able to, you know, set up this system where the corporations are, you know, effectively like these tech platforms are able to steer, like they make it so that they're at the end of the day controlling workers the employment conditions the workers have, but they don't have to take responsibility for being employers. And this thing of trying to make, you know, trying to muddle the worker-employer relationship in order to, in order to pass off your responsibilities uh, to to the workers uh, is it's a really big problem. And so I think what we really need is to start regulating a lot of these, you know, gig employers. And so let's start regulating them the same way we regulate other industries and the same way they regulate, you know, taxis. Let's actually regulate them. And yes, like, let's just be clear, right? The other thing is that the reason why, like, you know, people point out that, well, taxis, like, there are a lot of issues with taxis. It can be hard to get a taxi. You can call and wait for hours and no one shows up. Like, let's actually work on fixing those problems. Let's actually work on, uh, you know, let's work on making the regulated infrastructure better, both through taxis and public transit, instead of coming up with this completely unregulated Wild West that is, you know, becomes a great way to transfer wealth from, you know, traditionally immigrant families, uh, black and brown families to, you know, billionaire tech bros. Yeah. And, you know, I mentioned like there's the other trend of like corporations being bought out by conglomerates and private equity firms. I mean, this is another piece where that really leads to like the, the rising precarity of workers. Private equity firms, the way it's, you know, it's a type of financial firm that's a Wall Street firm that um, has a particular business model that is actually really heavily rooted in debt. But basically, private equity firms can take all the money out of a company, they can give it to their investors and then get the company to declare bankruptcy and lay off all the workers. They can do this even though they're sitting on mountains of cash because they own and control the company. But there's this legal fiction that they're somehow not the same as the company. And so they take out debt to buy the company. So what that means, I mean, just to be clear, actually, and this is this is a little bit wonky, but like, you know, private equity firms that bought Toys R Us, they took out a bunch of debt to buy Toys R Us. But technically, Toys R Us took out the debt to buy itself. And so the, the mm-hmm. private equity firm didn't, you know, KKR didn't take on the debt. Toys R Us took out the debt. And so Toys R Us went bankrupt because it had too much debt, not not KKR. And that's, you know, it's wild, right? Like private equity firms, they can make the companies they own take out debt to pay the investors, uh, to, to pay dividends to the investors. Uh, and at the end of the day, when this debt drives them bankrupt, well, you know, they have to lay off their workers, workers lose their pensions, workers lose all their benefits they might have had. But actually, like, it's not the private equity firm's problem. It's the company's problem because technically workers are are employed by the company. And even though that company is owned by the private equity firms, it's considered legally separate. And then Amazon steps in and takes over Toys R Us's market share. Mm-hmm, perfect, perfect conditions. 
It's interesting too, because there's a text, there's a tech solution here, at least to the first trend that you identified, right? Where improving the quality of regulated industries can be done with adding apps to existing taxi companies, you know, having trackers on buses so that folks know when their bus is going to arrive, when it's delayed. I mean, there's certainly sort of in direct contrast to the ways in which technology has enabled the rise of the gig economy, ways that it could be applied um, to to create equity and security and a much more robust uh, much more robust social safety net. So at PROA, we think a lot about the ways in which a lot of political economics functions below a layer of, of discourse right now very centered on sort of the premise of culture war and the ways in which these narratives distract from, occlude, and prevent organizing around very real economic conditions. Can you talk about the ways that the center and right deploy moral panics, for instance, more recently in the guise of culture wars in periods of significant economic downturn? And what do these moral panics achieve in maintaining precarity and social strat- and racial stratification? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the wealthy really, they live in fear of the masses rising up against them. Right. They know that the the amount of inequality we have uh, is untenable. So this is why we have the tech bros uh, that are really on the front lines of the UBI movement, right? The movement for universal basic income, because they want to make sure that people have their basic needs met so that so that we don't try to go for greater like wealth redistribution. Right. And so during economic downturns, is when these folks feel the most vulnerable. So they try to divide and distract us so that folks channel their frustration to organizing energy into these culture wars rather than turn their fire against their, you know, corporate overlords, right? So California passed Proposition 8, banning same-sex marriage in the fall of 2008 in the immediate aftermath of the financial crash, right? The anti-CRT critical race theory movement has really flourished among the economic uncertainty of the past couple of years, you know, proving once again that snowflakes are white. Uh, But, you know, this is um, an ongoing thing that they know that if they can divide us based on these cultural issues, that that's a way to prevent us from actually organizing around our economic self-interest, which is actually very similar in many ways, right? I think all the time I hear this, uh, people pose this question or make this comment that, oh, you know, why do poor white people vote against their economic, or vote against their self-interest? And it's like, well, they're not voting against their self-interest. It's just they're being organized to believe that that their cultural interest, their racial interest, whatever it is, is more important than their economic self-interest. And so it's they're being organized to prioritize certain uh, certain things above others. And we need to figure out how we're able to really you know, take that head on and be able to really you know, break that down for folks, right? How do we actually start talking about the fact that actually what are the issues that really affect our day-to-day lives the most? Uh, and how are we actually you know, up against the same same folks who are actually trying to divide us so that they can get even more powerful and even richer. That's a fascinating distinction between economic interest and cultural and and um, social religious interest, ultimately racial interest. I mean, it it's such a salient 
um, distinction that helps us, I think, understand the privatization of public education too, right? If you theocratize education in the U.S., then you consolidate what people's religious, cultural, moral um, interests are, and then you are able to then organize them as a larger block um, based on those interests as opposed to um, economic and uh, socioeconomic interests. That's fascinating. Uh, I really appreciate that distinction. Shifting our conversation a little bit to where we are seeing energy right now um, in organizing uh, for all of our economic, sociocultural interests, uh, there's a ton of energy right now around organizing labor, renter and debtor unions to build both worker power and solidarity across economically marginalized groups. How can organizing power in this way be translated into broader policy, policy shifts that protect those that are not politically organized? I mean, we need to build power to win structural changes. And over the past few decades, a lot of us have fooled ourselves into thinking that if we can only elect the right people, we'll be able to pass good policies. But what we see over and over again is that we elect people and they turn around and flip us the bird, right? So when I was at SEIU, we had spent years organizing to pass a bill in the California legislature that would give childcare workers the right to organize a union, over and over again, we would pass the bill and then Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger would veto it. We must have spent a fortune to actually get Jerry Brown elected as governor in 2010. Uh, and, you know, we're thinking, okay, now, like, we finally, we elected one, you know, we elected someone who gets us. Uh, so we passed the bill again through the legislature and in 2011. And what did Governor Brown do? He vetoed it, right? And what did we do in 2014? We endorsed him. Right. <laughs> Thankfully, childcare workers in California actually they finally you know won the right to organize a few years ago, and they won their first union contract just two years ago. But you know why is it that we elect the right people and then they flip to the other side? Right. Ultimately, it's because they're more afraid of pissing off their corporate donors than voters. Uh, and so I think what debtors unions, renters unions, uh, we're sort of saying is that we can't wait for elected officials to see the light. We need to hold these corporations accountable ourselves. We can do that by withholding our money the same way the labor unions withhold their labor. Right? Disruption is really the biggest tool we have at our disposal to affect change. That's why the strike is so powerful in the workplace. These non-traditional unions are really helping us wield that tool in new ways to force capital to pay attention to us. And one of the other things this does is by being able to highlight the role that these corporate actors are playing in the problems that we're facing, it also helps to make them toxic so that our elected officials, you know, think twice about siding with them over the broader community. And so I think, uh, you know, generally speaking, we need to have uh, much more organizing and power building. I think unions of all stripes are just a really powerful way to to do that, right? It's, it's really a great way to figure out how we amass and aggregate collective power uh, and bring that to bear against some of the most, you know, powerful and wealthiest corporations uh, in, in the world. Mm, that's a great point that it's, it's ultimately a numbers game, right? It's not a who's who of who can you get in office, but, you know, having... Uh, majorities in really meaningful ways. Um, that's, I think that's a really astute observation um, as we think about, especially as we go into a 2024 election season and we're going to be talking about people and individuals um, and rallying behind individuals who are ultimately going to end up in very slim majority uh, majorities and 
um, not only in the federal legislature, but at the state level in some purple states. I mean, I think we're going to see a lot of really um, very slim majorities in 2024. So shifting to the work that you do day in, day out um, at Acre Action Center on race and the economy, what are some of the core strategies that Acre is focused on in addressing racial capitalism at a structural level? And how does Acre balance the short-term needs of blocking harmful programs like ShotSpotter with the long-term work of creating systemic change? I mean, so my, uh, you know, my co-director at Acre, Bria Carlson, she, uh, you know, she made this point that she's like, Acre is an intervention in traditional organizing, uh, right? And so uh, the more I reflect on that, I'm like, that's exactly right. We, we value the work that base building community organizations and labor unions are doing to build power across different sectors of the economy. And we believe they can be more effective in winning concrete gains for their members. If they had sharper analyses about race, corporate power, and how the two intersect. And if they could shift their campaigns accordingly, right? We know that, especially since CIS is united, everyone talks about, oh, corporations run our government, or they run the government. But our campaigns don't actually, for the most part, reflect that because we're still trying to focus our energy on changing policy, right? It's change, change through the legislature, the city council. Uh, and when we don't get it, we, again, as I said earlier, we focus on electing the right people so we can, and we still don't get it, right? And so ACRA's role is to work with organizations that are trying to make this shift uh, and provide them with both strategic support and technical assistance to make it possible to, you know, sharpen their racial justice analysis and their corporate analysis. Um, and so, you know, we know that to dismantle racialized capitalism, we need to redistribute power and wealth from the oligarch store communities. We believe that short-term campaigns that community organizations and unions are engaged in, whether it's to stop budget cuts, reopen mental health clinics, or, you know, win a raise for workers, these all need to feed into this broader project of redistribution of power and wealth, right? And that's how we can ultimately build enough power to be able to, you know, get to structural change. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, ShotSpotter. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I talked about like how ShotSpotter works as this AI-based gunshot detection uh, technology. You know, there are campaigns in cities around the country to cancel ShotSpotter contracts. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have one here in Chicago. We've seen campaigns in places like Detroit, Durham, Buffalo, some campaigns in California, right? Like, but these are all very important fights, but we're also clear that if we just go to city councils and say, look how buggy this technology is, cancel it, right? Oh, it has a 90%, you know, false alarm rate, uh, that they'll just bring in another surveillance company that claims to be more accurate, Right. And so the problem isn't just that ShotSpotter is, you know, faulty and inaccurate. It's that it exists in the first place. If we only say that we want to cancel this technology because it's inaccurate, we're reinforcing the other side's framing that surveillance keeps us safe. Gunshot detection doesn't make communities safe. Investing in communities makes them safe. Right. Surveilling youth just leads to more black and brown kids behind bars. Funding youth jobs, after school programs and youth sports, that's what keeps kids safe. So yes, we need to cancel these contracts, but we need to do it in a way that sets us up for the for the structural changes that we want to see, not in a way that reinforces the other side's framing and ultimately sets us back. And so that's one of the key things we try to do is we figure out how do we actually, you know, help like 
help our partner organizations win the thing they're trying to win here and now, but how do we do it in a way that actually sets us up for a bigger win down the line and helps us build enough power to be able to, you know, actually win those things uh, when the time comes. Mm, that's fascinating. You know, I've, I've been thinking lately about how civic engagement requires practice and you start with small campaigns and you build up and you learn, uh, you learn the vocabulary and, and the methodologies. And it sounds like by reinforcing structural solutions at every level of a campaign, you practice uh, addressing structural needs, you know, from jump and you teach, you know, we're teaching um, future organizers that the the answer is never to stop or block a single policy, but to understand where it originates from. That's a really astute methodology. Well, great. Thank you so much, Saka. This has been a fascinating conversation. You covered a ton of ground here and you did so really succinctly, really astutely. And I think you gave us a roadmap in so many ways for thinking about the intersection between grounding our um, sort of grassroots organizing and institutional organizing practices in the very um, reality-oriented political economic um, understandings. And, you know, I think that's that's a hard thing to do, right? Especially when we're talking about moral panics, we're talking about very emotive um, realms of and work and life um, to bring back sort of the root root causes at every level. And I appreciate that. And thank you for this really important conversation. I think we're dealing with a very interesting time. Uh, and I think the work the PRA does is just really so important to helping us understand the issues that we're facing. So then we can you know, really think about how to most effectively uh, campaign and fight back. So thank you for that work. Thank you so much, Sakim. Thank you for listening to Inform Your Resistance with Political Research Associates. Today's episode was hosted by me, Koki Mendes. Our producer and fact checker is Olivia Lawrence Wildman. Hadini Rajagopalan created our communications and marketing materials, and Frank Lawrence, our music. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe. And the best thing you can do to help us is tell your comrades about the pod. Resisting authoritarianism is just better with friends. Until next time.